This is Startup Renegades, a raw conversation with founders, entrepreneurs, and the unicorns among us who have taken their idea and turned it into a thriving, profitable brand. I'm your host, Shauna Armitage, and my work as a fractional marketing director has led me to connect with dozens and dozens of founders in all stages of their startup journeys. Whether they're bootstrapping or fundraising or have capital on hand, there's one big question founders always ask, how do I grow this thing? On Startup Renegades, we'll explore how they did it, and you'll walk away with actionable steps you can take on your own journey to scalable growth. Hey, Renegades, it's Shauna. Today, I'm going to share with you this really cool story from Elizabeth Reese. She is the founder of Chasing Paper, a company that's innovating the home space through wall coverings, flooring, and art prints. When I came across this company, I was totally blown away. I always thought of wallpaper as the kind of thing that you buy at Home Depot. There's not a lot of options, kind of a pain in the ass to put up, and I'd probably rather paint. But when I saw the designs and the ease of use, just the beautiful things that Elizabeth and her company are doing, I became a believer, let me tell you. So whether you are just trying to spruce up your space or you are a designer at heart, this company is really something special and it's worth checking out. For today, I'm going to share her entrepreneurial journey with you. It is an amazing one, like most of the founders that we have on this show. And I really just love how she came up with an idea for an industry that wasn't all that innovative. And she changed it and she made it a real commodity that was a highly in demand. She's got some great tips for you. So let's dive right in. Hey, Elizabeth, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So I was starting to tell you before we recorded that I just love your business. I think it's so cool. I feel like it's one of those things that seems so set in stone to me, right? Like I already know that there's wallpaper at the stores and it's not something that I would think that is um, one of those industries to be innovative and to really change. And I feel like chasing paper has totally proven me wrong there. Oh, well, thank you. I got some business advice very early in my career that said the best business ideas come from ones that are kind of derivate from something that's over an idea that's over 100 years old. And then when you can innovate those industries. So Everyone knows what wallpaper is, but yeah. I think a lot of people have some preconceived or, you know, clearly I do dramatic stress maybe from sort of the old way of doing it. So whenever you can kind of, I think, improve upon an idea that everyone already knows about, it's a great thing. It's a great talking point. And then people already sort of have a level of education and typically, you know, feelings about it one way or the other. So I love that feedback and glad that you think that. So that is such amazing business advice because when we're in the startup space, a lot of times companies are looking to be the hot new thing, right? They want to do something that's never been done before. And yes, there is value in that. There's certainly value in being innovative, but when you can take an industry that's already strong and just carve out your own market share by doing it differently, I think that's really powerful. Absolutely. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs underestimate 
the amount of time and money you need to educate an audience about something, an idea or product that's totally new. There's a lot of resources and typically those resources translate to dollar amounts (laughs) that goes into education for audiences. And so if you have something that is building upon an idea that people already know about, um, typically there's a lot less um, ramp up needed, again, just kind of in terms of marketing and educational dollars, so that you can really kind of just get to people faster and get your idea to them faster, which I think is something that we really aim to do when starting Chasing Paper. Yeah, you can't see me right now, but I'm getting like whiplash from shaking my head yes, like just (laughs) all the yes over here. (laughs) It's great if you can be the first one to the industry, but you've got a really big uphill climb to face when you don't have any, not just brand awareness, but awareness of the problem that you're solving because most people aren't going out and searching for it. But let's get back to you because I want to hear about this business. So let's start at the beginning. You know, were you always an entrepreneur? It's funny. Looking back now, I definitely have had entrepreneurial tendencies. I wouldn't say I was always entrepreneurial. I've always been sort of a risk taker. I've always tried to sort of go on my own path, but I wasn't one of those kids that was like, you know, lemonade standing every weekend and always trying to like make a buck. I wasn't that kind of kid, but I was really curious. And I always kind of like to do things differently than my family, than my friend group, Um, always kind of taking a road less traveled, which now I understand looking back really, you know, kind of set me up for success in the entrepreneurial space, just kind of following my instincts and kind of not letting, I don't know, kind of societal pressures kind of dictate sort of how my life went. It's kind of a yes and no question or answer to that question, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So what was kind of like your first dive in? What did you do for your career? You know, I graduated college. Um, I worked for a big organization, um, which was great. I learned a lot quickly. Um, I worked for National Geographic. Um, I worked for some great female bosses, but I also felt like being kind of a cog in the wheel in the hub of the machine just made my work not feel super tangible. I didn't feel like I was really like owning any of my work. I would do kind of a small piece of it and be handed off to someone else who would be handed off to someone else. And so I think I knew sort of early in my 20s that I wanted to have more ownership of my work. Again, that did not in my mind think like, oh, I'm going to start a business and I'm going to kind of run something or run a company. But I remember clearly having that feeling like that just didn't feel like my calling. And from there, I actually ended up traveling for like a full year by myself all over Asia. And again, that was kind of one of those things that, you know, my parents thought I was absolutely insane. Most of my friends were like, why are you doing this? But for me, it was just like this instinct. I really, really wanted to see the world. I wanted to do it while I was still young and maybe naive enough to do it. I learned a lot. I met a lot of great people. I saw a lot of things. And then I came back and moved to New York. I was really just kind of ready to work and ready to kind of sink my teeth into something. And again, I wasn't totally sure what that thing was yet, but I was excited and I was ready. Yeah, absolutely. So when you got there, 
what were you doing for work and how did you come up with the idea for this business? So I am third generation in my family's printing business. They print something totally different than wallpaper or they did at the time. And there was something that was really interesting to me about that. I did um, my graduate work right after that trip uh, when I got back from Asia and I got my master's in global communications and really kind of the thing that I had been learning through that program was just like the idea of storytelling and brand voice and brand ethos. And kind of at the time, not that it was like a new idea, but it was, I felt like, again, this is probably 10 years ago. It really started to be meaningful for customers. You know, I think before that customers kind of didn't care what the brand was or where the product came from, but around 10 years ago, people started really becoming invested in that and wanting to know kind of the why and the how. Can I ask you why you think that is? So you put like kind of a timeline on it, like 10 years ago. What was changing culturally? What was changing for us as consumers where we all of a sudden cared where our products were coming from? You know, I think it's kind of a generational thing. I mean, I'm a old millennial, but I am a millennial. And I think for our generation, I think that they saw sort of how our parents, you know, for our parents' generation, they worked sort of at one company. And I think that there started to be a shift, maybe even like 20 years ago with like, you know, the internet and kind of all that stuff and things being brought online, that we just had access to a lot more brands and a lot more people, I think just with the revolution of social media and things just being so much more readily available to us and information being more readily available. I think people just took interest in that. I think before that people were just like, Oh, you know, my toothbrush gets made who knows where. And, you know, they didn't really care about it because how would you have gotten that information or you wouldn't have been seeing that information or kind of reading about things. It just wouldn't have been as easily accessible. And I think just for millennials and then Gen Z, it's like a slightly different kind of subsect of what's maybe interesting or important to them. But I think generationally for millennials, you know, we have a strong tie to the why. And I think that's, again, why a lot of the brands that have done so well in the last five to 10 years are the ones that have put a lot of emphasis, a lot of time, money, energy into sort of getting that brand ethos, that brand voice speaking directly to that consumer Um, then that goes down a whole other subsect of how you're speaking to them, where you're speaking to them. Yeah. Social media and email and kind of all of those things. But yeah, kind of going back to my story, I really kind of saw that happening. I was living in New York. I kind of felt like I was kind of in the epicenter. I was, you know, going to events and hearing people speak and finding my way into conferences. I would... (laughs) email people who are hosting conferences that I was interested in and offer myself free for like whatever, like registration desk, or I would volunteer for a few days just so that then when I wasn't working or if I worked one day for free that I could listen to speakers the next day. I mean, I was really pretty scrappy in those days, just trying to kind of get in front of the right people or find people to network with. But every story sort of that I heard from the entrepreneurs at the time was just that brand voice and finding your customer and sort of building around them was kind of what everyone was doing Mm -hmm. who were being successful at the time. So as I mentioned, I'm third generation in my family's printing business. I asked my dad that if I take on some projects that were interesting to me that I could produce through our family business, that would be okay. And he said, 
you know, as long as you break even and don't lose this money, it would be fine. And so my first couple projects, I definitely didn't make any money, but it was a great learning experience of sort of finding and thinking about products that could be interesting. And I was doing a lot of it for just other entrepreneurs at the time, talking with them, hearing what they were needing, think what they were thinking about, what some of their pain points were and a peel and stick. They were kind of wraps at the time was something that I created for, again, just a fellow entrepreneur. Um, We installed them on like Friday. And by Monday, it was a mostly female work environment. But by Monday, I had a couple emails in my inbox being like, where can I buy this? This product sort of transformed our office. We love it. Where can we buy it? And that kind of started the research process for me of understanding kind of like what removable wallpaper was. At the time, there was very few people in the space. And a lot of it was either very low design, very inexpensive, printed on vinyl, or very high design, very expensive, kind of bespoke, one of a kind sort of things. But there really wasn't anything that sort of lived in the middle from a price point perspective, from a design perspective. And that's where I lived. You know, I lived in the middle of that. I didn't want something cheap and plastic in my apartment, but I couldn't afford like a $10,000 bespoke, you know, wall in my apartment either, or nor would I couldn't have afforded that or probably wanted it at the time. Okay. Let me take a break right now to say that we have a strong tie to the why is like my new favorite saying. I'm going to plaster that everywhere. (laughs) But Talk to me about how when you came up with this product, where were you putting it that those people came to you and said, you know, this is revolutionizing our office. Where can we get more of this? Where were people finding it? Because that's part of the problem, right? Is that we have a great idea, but we don't often have brand awareness. That's a really tough piece of the puzzle. Yeah. I mean, there was nothing at the time. I mean, there was things out there, but we put it or we installed it in a office for a beauty company. It was all women in the office. We installed it. But then, I mean, they didn't even know what to call it. And neither did I at the time. I wasn't like aware that there was removable wallpaper at the time. But I knew that because of the excitement and sort of the buy-in that I had received from sort of this perfect audience, it was, you know, our audience even still today is 25 to 45-year-old women, which was a total subsect of this company. Maybe it skewed slightly younger, but you know, people were like, where could we get this? I want this. And of course, I didn't have a website and I didn't have anything at the time. I was just kind of doing these projects as kind of one off. I mean, again, I was just kind of experimenting. I was just trying things. But after I kind of got that buy in and actually like the CEO of that business, which is now like a billion dollar business, (laughs) you know, kind of talked to me through and said, I don't know what the idea is here, but there is an idea. And really with her sort of guidance and, you know, just kind of getting that early support and early just kind of recognition of the idea was so important to me, which is why I really always love doing podcasts like this, speaking with other entrepreneurs, because I think sometimes when someone that you think is kind of in your space or thinking about things in an entrepreneurial way, and they kind of agree with you that there's a great idea there that it kind of gives you sort of that fuel in your fire sometimes that you need to sort of get going. And so that's what I did. It was an iteration of sort of what we had put into this office, but we started kind of doing R&D and trying lots of different things, building a website, doing photo shoots. Um, It all came together pretty quickly just because I wanted to get it out into the world as quickly as I could, which ended up being 
also pretty smart just because obviously the category is a lot more cluttered now. But, you know, we were one of the first to market in the way that we did it. And we sold in panels versus rolls. We didn't Photoshop anything, which was like a very strong category standard at the time. So yeah, we just it kind of to your point at the beginning of this, it's we took an idea and tried our best to make it better. Thought about the pain points of why wallpaper was such a hot topic and difficult product for so many people and tried to make it better. So what were your initial steps as the business owner? Because you had this kind of project that you were doing through your family business. And then you had this market validation that came through on a different channel that said, wow, we need this. So you know, this is something at some point. So how did you take it from that project that you were doing in the family business to your own brand? Hey everybody, it's Shauna. I just wanted to take a quick break from this episode to remind you that there's lots of good stuff happening over at StartupRenegades.com. First, you can enter your email address, join the community, and get notified of discounts and specials that our featured founders are giving exclusively to the Startup Renegades community. Also, get notified when we have founder firesides, where we put the founders in the hot seats and give you the opportunity to ask them the questions in a one-on-one environment. Plus, you can join the Startup Renegades Business Workshop. This is a four-week accelerator for founders who need a custom strategy, actionable next steps, and a true support system in order to scale. Is that you? If so, come join us at StartupRenegades.com and let's get started. Yeah, I mean, I think right away, I knew that the people that I was getting the validation from were essentially like me, it was other women, you know, in their mid 20s, living in a big city. I lived in a little tiny West Village apartment that I couldn't paint, because it was like a pre war building. I mean, it was teeny, teeny, tiny, but I wanted to customize my space. This was also happening simultaneously with Instagram, Pinterest, you know, Facebook was obviously had been around for a while, but people were using it differently, um, especially with Instagram starting, and that people were really kind of showcasing their own personal brand, their own personal space, which was a really great sort of synergy when we were starting Chasing Paper. But I mean, I essentially started Chasing Paper with like, no capital, no industry know how no industry contacts, (laughs) like truly, I built a site with the help of a developer on Shopify. I mean, it was very bare bones, you know, just very simple. My big expense was doing a photo shoot. So, you know, we kind of knew that to me, when I saw photoshopped images of wallpaper, that it felt just kind of uninspired. Um, To me, it wasn't really aspirational. It didn't get me excited for a wallpaper project. I knew that shooting the wallpaper and the product in a real environment, you know, with natural light or studio light that made the product feel exciting and fresh and also, there was a huge you know, DIY component of this that we wanted to really empower our customers to be able to do it themselves. And so that was probably my biggest expenditure before launch was doing like a real photo shoot. I mean, even now looking back on it, it was so small. And, you know, I installed all the paper myself, I styled all the setups myself. We've come a long way since then. But <laughs> I actually love to hear that because I think that looking back and when you achieved a certain level of success, it seems so small. But 
you remember being in that moment as a baby entrepreneur when this was just such a big expense and you were taking a leap of faith because you didn't know if it was going to pay off. And that's a really scary moment. So just being able to look at it now as something small is kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, like you said, at the time, it was a huge risk. It really felt like that. I mean, I had some validation, but another great little nugget of advice I got very early kind of in all of this is they said, everyone will tell you it's a good idea. Not everyone will give you their credit card. And kind of at the time I was like, what? You know, because all my family, my friends, they were like, go for it. This sounds awesome. But truly, I mean, everyone can say that to you, but like good work, good idea, or any kind of affirmations doesn't pay your rent. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't pay your employees. It doesn't pay your supplier. So having to really sort of be able to monetize the idea is a really scary part of entrepreneurship and really kind of getting that buy-in from your customer sort of literally and figuratively is a big piece of it. And you have to, of course, make investments in order to make that happen. And that really felt to me at the time that it was going to be worthwhile. That still stands today. If we shoot something in a really beautiful, inspired way that that will then do well on social media, it will then become a top producing print. I mean, there's such a trickle down of that. So again, that was just an instinct I had very early that a lot of people were like, why would you pay for a photo shoot when everyone else does Photoshop? And again, it just kind of came back to those sort of instincts, the things that I felt like I knew as a consumer myself that would move the needle for me. And yeah, luckily it it paid off. So (laughs) that's amazing. So let's talk a little bit about your growth phase because the business is amazing. The startup story is amazing, but what founders really get stuck on is what do I do to grow? Is it social media? Is it ads? Is it strategic partnerships? So you got past this ideation phase um, and you've started to build the business. What did you do to actually scale it? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And you know, this is coming from someone who's never taken any outside investment. We've always bootstrapped the business. And the biggest thing I will say to kind of preface this whole thing is that things started slow. I mean, we had a lot of press. We had a lot of early buy-in from editors and people that sort of like mattered in the design space, which was great. But I mean, we see on you know covers of magazines a lot of times that companies go from zero to a million to a billion seemingly overnight. And I've been running Chasing Paper for almost 10 years and our growth has been organic and slow over time. And really what I tried to do is I tried to build a strong brand, kind of figure out what our values and our kind of core differentiators were and continue to be. And then I really tried to just have strong storytelling. And I think, you know, obviously at the time, social media was a little bit different 10 years ago. It was kind of Instagram was just starting. Pinterest was just starting. And I tried to do all those things in a very authentic, genuine way that really told the story of Chasing Paper. I spoke directly to our consumer, which again, was something that I saw other companies that I really admired doing at the time. And I, as I saw things, the ROI on certain parts of the things that I was trying be stronger, I would move a little bit more money towards that or move away from other things. You know, there was things that we tried in the beginning that didn't work. Of course, you know, you have to try a lot of things to sort of see what resonates with your audience and with your customer. 
I mean, I will definitely say it's kind of like the old adage or like everyone tells you, you know, between year two and three, I think that's really a huge inflection point of like, am I going to really do this or am I going to give up on it? It was definitely that way for us. You know, growth was really strong. It was a tough first two years and just trying to get to the right places and get in front of the right people. Um, We definitely kind of had that feeling of like, is this really going to take off? Is this really going to be sustainable? You know, I was doing everything myself back then. Um, I had just like a production team and then it was me doing essentially everything. And it felt very lonely, I think at that time. But, you know, for us, it's been really strong, organic storytelling. So we have always had a huge sort of emphasis and just kind of thoughtfulness around PR, um, getting great placement. Again, for us, we had no ad budget at the beginning. And even then, I mean, Facebook and digital ads just weren't even a thing back then. You couldn't advertise on Instagram. I mean, you had we had Instagram, we had Facebook, but there was no ads at that time. So for us, That's it was- That's so weird. Like yeah, there was a time when you couldn't advertise on social media? I know, right? And I mean, an advertising for us in like a magazine or anything like that would have just been like out of the world of realm of possibilities. You know, and podcasts weren't a thing, you know, just kind of the places that now we think like, oh, yeah, if you're a startup, you should be in these places. You know, none of those really existed or existed in the same way as they do now. So yeah, PR was just a huge thing. I tell this story often, but again, I had barely any budget. And so I literally like online sleuthed for addresses and names of home editors from all the big magazines. And I went to Ikea, I bought like $2 frames, wooden frames, and I framed a piece of our wallpaper, like of our capsule collection. And I hand wrote a note to like 50 editors. I mean, it took me weeks. It was I mean, I wrote them like a long thing about my story about myself about why I thought like coverage in whatever magazine or whoever they were was a great thing for them and how this was going to be like the next big thing. And I sent them all out and a lot of them I hand delivered around New York. And I don't know, I think I probably sent 50 and maybe five or 10, I got a response or we got press or, you know, and again, I had no industry ties. I didn't know anyone. <laughs> That's any actually magazine. a really fantastic <laughs> conversion rate. <laughs> I know. That's fantastic. I was like probably the only crazy person like hand delivering things to like Hearst and whatever. And, but I made friends with the people at the front desk and brought treats for them. And I mean, I really Midwesterned my way. (laughs) And I I love that. But yeah, I mean, I think again, nowadays, all the things I read about are people that have, you know, a hundred thousand person mailing lists before they even start. And the thing that people don't talk about, I think a lot of times in those articles is just the money or the connections that a lot of these startups and companies have before they're even a company or before they're even selling the first thing. And I think that that can be discouraging for a lot of people, but there are ways to sort of, I think, get in front of people that costs an Ikea frame and postage. (laughs) That's amazing. So tell me, where is Chasing Paper at today and where is it headed? Yeah, it's a great question. We've had pretty much double digit growth, like organic growth over the last eight and a half years, which has been fantastic. And again, everyone says kind of getting to that first million is like the hardest money you'll ever work for. And, you know, that happened for us, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. And 
I think once you kind of hit some inflection points from a revenue standpoint, it really starts to get more exciting, but also, of course, more nerve wracking in certain ways as well. We are now a team of eight and we are shipping all over the world. We started obviously with our peel and stick wallpaper. We now also offer traditional wallpaper, which was something that our trade members were really big advocates for. And again, we listen and talk to our customers every single day and try to make modifications based on what their needs are. Um, A lot of people and designers who were working on projects that they wanted the wallpaper for a longer period of time or just were not interested in the idea of peel and stick, but wanted our designs. We launched that two summers ago and it's been the growth just even in that category with that product alone has been absolutely phenomenal. Obviously with COVID last year, we continued to listen to our customer. They needed a lot of things. We do have peel and stick whiteboards for scheduling and keeping things organized. We sold a ton of those at the start when everyone was homeschooling their kiddos. And again, just trying to really be thoughtful and agile and getting products to market quickly so that you know we're able to sort of fill the void and the need um, for our customer. We also launched a peel and stick flooring this year at the start of this year. And that was really, again, people wanted to take on projects. Contractors are now, you know, six months to a year out. People wanted to take on projects of their own or kind of do a refresh in a kitchen or a mudroom or a bathroom. And they kept asking us if they could use our wallpaper on the floors. Um, which it really wasn't suitable for. But we thought we could create a peel and stick flooring that would be durable and great for those spaces. And we did and launched it. And we've had also great, it's been received really well by our audience and continues to grow. So yeah, I mean, truly the heart and the sort of thing that we kind of keep at the center of everything is our customer and what does she need and where is she going and what is she working on? And I think with that sort of being kind of at the center of everything, we make products that kind of help her with where she is in her life. That's amazing. So Elizabeth, tell me, what does it mean to you to be a startup renegade? I think to me, it means being just incredibly stubborn and dogged. (laughs) I think everyone has ideas, which is amazing. And I think as an entrepreneur, people love to tell you their ideas, which is always really fun. It's like at a cocktail party, people are like, I have this idea if they know that you're kind of in the entrepreneurial space, which I always love to have conversations with people about that. But I think the thing that people don't often think about is just how absolutely committed you have to be to that idea. Entrepreneurship is hard. (laughs) It's really hard. And I think that there's a lot of sort of like sexy ideas about entrepreneurship that are just sort of like out in our world, which is exciting. And I think it gets a lot more people sort of maybe into the world of startups and starting things. But I think just being very committed and just very like loyal to the idea and to your brand and to your people is sort of the thing that keeps you going because many days you want to give up or try something else or the allure of just like, you know, a paycheck and a nine to five job and you aren't working all the time or thinking about your business all the time, you know, can definitely be attractive. But I think if you're committed and really in love and passionate about the idea and the brand, it makes it a lot easier. So that would be my thought. (laughs) 
Yes, absolutely. I love it. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your journey with me, with my listeners. Can you tell everybody where they can find you and Chasing Paper online? Absolutely. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at Chasing Paper, or you can come on, hop on the website and see what we have to offer at www.chasingpaper.com. Yes. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Shauna. That was this week's episode of Startup Renegades. Thank you so much for joining me and soaking up all that brilliant entrepreneurial knowledge from today's guest. If you want to suggest a founder for a future episode or just want to connect, you can find me on Instagram at shauna.armitage. That's S-H-A-U-N-A dot A-R-M-I-T-A-G-E. And just a little reminder, if you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference and it's so important for helping the show thrive. I'll be here same time next Tuesday for a raw, honest conversation with another startup renegade.